think like leaning into the community, you know, as you said, the food and beverage community, this is something I wish that we had done earlier on is leaning into the community and not feeling like every problem needed to be solved internally and being more vulnerable. And again, I think that this comes back to sort of the LinkedIn conversation a little bit around if you see everyone's posting wins and how well they're doing, you can be reluctant to say, I don't know what I'm doing, or I can't figure this out, or, you know, help me, right? And I think really, you know, being vulnerable and leaning into a few trusted people in space is incredibly important and, you know, will definitely help accelerate sort of the solving certain answers for you. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands. From developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am really happy to have as my guest, Tommy Kelly, who is the co-founder of Sound. So welcome to the podcast, Tommy. I'm really excited to chat with you about this brand. Hey, Christy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm honored to be here. Excited to chat. Great. So give us a little background. Talk about Sound and what it is and how you got there. Yeah, so Sound is a beverage company. We make a line of tea-based sparkling waters made with tea, botanicals, and fruit extracts, everything certified organic, completely unsweetened. You know, the story really started about almost 10 years ago. The original idea for it came about Celine, my co-founder, and I were actually engineers in the nuclear power industry. So it was born out of a very unique place. And, you know, I, I drank hot tea for caffeine and unsweetened. I didn't drink sweetener. I didn't drink sugar. I was, you know, the stevia, erythritol, monk fruit kind of stuff never really sat well. And so really stayed away from any sweetened beverages. And so I would drink hot tea for caffeine and I would drink sparkling water for something more refreshing. And I was surrounded by soda drinkers in this very corporate environment who were drinking that for their midday, late morning caffeine. And I really wanted something like that, that was cold, crisp, caffeinated like a soda, but didn't have obviously all of the terrible ingredients that come in most sodas. And so thought, why can't I just carbonate tea? And so that was the original inspiration for just creating the product, a carbonated tea, as we were calling it at the time. And, you know, kind of in parallel with that, my wife, Lauren, who's a registered dietitian, was working in hospital settings in New York City. And we would just be chatting at night about different, you know, kind of patients and stories and just these anecdotes around the sort of lack of education and around nutrition. And then in combination, some of this like predatory marketing coming from big food, big soda, and, you know, the idea of like sugar and the tagline open happiness. And, and, you know, so she would tell stories around, you know, people would say, Oh, I don't drink sugar. I don't drink soda. I just drink ginger ale or, you know, I don't drink sweetened drinks. I drink orange juice. And, you know, that is really where the fire started to burn more in terms of, oh, this is kind of a fun little thing to make and drink. And that really was the catalyst to bring it towards a business. And this is something that the world needed. And, you know, so Salim and I joined forces and launched the business a little over seven years ago now. Wow. Wow. So go back for a second. I have two questions for you based on what you just said, but I want to talk about the fact that you are both nuclear engineers. That's a good one. I haven't heard that transition before. So can you talk a little bit about like how you go from that to I'm going to start a brand and become an entrepreneur 
And I mean, it must've been a huge shift for you, both of you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously a huge shift and I think it was kind of great because Salim and I didn't come from the industry and it's really what made, so, you know, one kind of, I guess, important piece of the story too, is when we launched the beverage company, it was actually called Soterra. This was, you know, clever, we thought, you know, very hard to pronounce name, but it was soda of the earth. It was a better for you soda. And again, Salim and I not coming from the beverage industry, we were, you know, just naive. And we started to get ingredient spec sheets, you know, for peach flavor. And we looked through it and there was no peach on it anywhere. It just, it was just kind of sounded like a chemical, you know, MSDS sheet. Like, what is this thing? And that was really kind of what it was always, the idea was always around a brand built on ingredient quality and integrity. But, you know, that was really when the name sound was inspired. We knew we wanted to change the name and it was just around how much mystery there was in ambiguity and so many of these natural flavors and within the broader food and beverage system where, right, we're like putting so many things into our body, we just take for granted. And, you know, we're trusting the brands and the people behind them to do the diligence to say they're safe, they're high quality. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of going a little bit on a tangent, but that I think was really the biggest blessing of us coming from an industry that was such a 180 from the one we were getting into is just every single thing we saw was a clean slate, thinking about how to go to market, who to partner with, things like that. You know, obviously it it took us longer to get there because we had to figure out every answer ourselves. There was really very little learnings that we could take with us from a formulation perspective or, you know, supply chain distribution, you know, thinking of even things like, you know, Googling, like what is gross profit margin, right? So there was a steep learning curve on every, you know, kind of element across the business. But as engineers, you know, Salim and I both really have this mindset of, you know, there's a solution to every problem and continuing to solve for it and iterate and, you know, sort of testing variables. And, And that's really what it's been, you know, the journey of the business is, you know, the liquid of our product has never changed in terms of carbonated, you know, unsweetened, organic, not using these cheap natural flavors and really also having the mission side of it. You know, so I think it was that mindset that we brought to it as well, continuing to solve for, you know, packaging, messaging hierarchy or whatever it was, was kind of the engineering mindset that I think we brought to it. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about their naivety being an advantage in a lot of ways because you get to make decisions and ask questions that maybe people who have already been in the industry and make the assumptions about what's okay and not okay. They already have sort of blinders onto some things because they've already been in the industry. Do you feel that way too? Do you feel like it helps you to not know anything because you pushed on places where other people might've just been like, ah, I can't go there. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's definitely has been helpful again for us to think about without any knowing anything, how would we do it? I think there's obviously, again, it takes more time. You make maybe certain mistakes that you wouldn't, but I do think at the end of the day, it's, it's been a blessing for us to, to be able to at least build the foundation, right? Like to get it on the right trajectory from a quality and positioning perspective. And then you know, the questions that are sort of trade secrets within the industry around, you know, different distribution styles, hey, which retail partner works better with a broadline distributor or DSD, or who's the best merchandising partner here, right? Those are things that you have to kind of rely on industry and past knowledge and experience for. But in terms of just the product quality positioning, yeah, I think it's definitely been a blessing for us. 
Awesome. I'm curious about the flavoring conversation, because obviously this is one of the things I think is really tricky. And one of the reasons I also love this part of the industry, like you're really trying to give people truth and also really high quality ingredients. And I think most consumers don't even know what they don't know. So when you think you're seeing a seltzer or a sparkling water with lime or lemon, you just assume that it's real. And and sometimes you don't even go and look because you're thinking you're doing something healthy. And the fact that you guys chose not to do that must have been hard decision because it must have been more expensive, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely more expensive. It's also very limiting on the types of ingredients and flavors you can use yeah. and the sort of potency of them, right? Yeah. Like you can make a more flavorful lemon flavor using lower qualities or, you know, kind of chemical techniques. But if you're using sort of just derivatives of the single ingredient, sometimes it's tougher to do that. And that's actually what happened with our peach flavor. We launched a flavor that had an organic peach flavor. This is one that, you know, you'll see across the board. There's on packaging, sometimes it'll say with other natural flavors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of just obviously a way to say like, there's a bunch of other stuff in here beyond peach. And, you know, so for us, our peach flavor was certified organic. However, it was certified organic because it was 95% organic ethyl alcohol. And then the peach component was a mystery, you know, and then it really comes down to the brand again, in the integrity of us to say, okay, well, we don't trust that even though we could put on the packaging, this is organic. And, you know, say, Hey, like this is high quality product. You know, we decided we don't know what's in it. And so therefore we don't feel comfortable selling it. So we decided to discontinue that flavor. Wow. So I'm going to get off on a little consumer tangent for a second, but do you think that the people who are buying your brand really know that, or does it matter to you if they do or don't? I think it matters to an extent. You end up getting into like a situation of splitting hairs and you're kind of, you know, it's a distraction. It can be a distraction if you talk too much about it. We sort of pick our spots usually on like a monthly basis to highlight certain things. And, you know, so most recently we talked about organic citric acid. So, you know, a lot of food and beverage brands use citric acid as a stabilizer, you know, pH balance. Sometimes it helps brighten flavors. It, you know, it ultimately helps make them shelf stable. It drops the pH. And so most conventional citric acids are made from very low sort of quality sources. And we use a certified organic citric acid that comes from citrus fruits. And, you know, that was a story we wanted to tell because Mm -hmm. citric acid is something that, again, people just take for granted. You don't really think about, well, what is it? It's in the drink, so it must be safe and moving on. I have other things to think about, right? And so we, we try to highlight those, you know, at a sort of cadence that makes sense. But I mean, ultimately, we want to tell the story of what you're getting from our product, not what you're not getting. And so we still want to lead with the flavor. We still want to lead with the fact that, you know, we're packing this more body, more flavor, more function into a drink that has no sweeteners. And we try to, you know, within our website, certain things where, again, if a customer is curious, it's there, but we want those things to be more of, you know, things we do rather than who we are. So yeah, it's just really striking a balance, I think, to make sure you can tell the story that evokes the emotional relationship with the drink. And we want to do all that stuff in the background, the making sure we're, you know, giving back, making sure we're certified organic, we're not using sweeteners, we're vetting every ingredient, but that can't be everything. 
Yeah. You know, I have a question for you about what you said about not knowing what you didn't know at the beginning and then having to rely at some point on the industry and the experts that you came in contact with. I feel like based on the experience I've had in the natural foods industry, there's a really nice community that is open to helping each other and not really as much about keeping secrets as the big CPG brands are. Have you had that experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really can't speak to how it compares relatively, but yeah, it really is something where, you know, you can pose a question any, you know, and it's it's a tough balance depending on the community you're in, right? Because as as founders, you're always trying to raise capital or you're trying yes. to show, hey, I'm an expert. I know what I'm doing, right? But at the same time, being vulnerable within the trusted community to say, hey, like, I don't know what I'm doing over here, or I don't know who I can reach out to as a supplier, hey, who are you guys using as an agency here? It really is just a phenomenal community. You know, I, I think everybody really has ultimately sort of the same end goal. And so in a way, we're doing it in our own ways and our own routes to market, our own products. But I think we all kind of have the same sort of general goal in mind. And I really have found it to be an awesome community to rely on and just kind of open up, you know, taking turns on the couch and saying like, hey, here's what we're struggling with. And, you know, like, you know, and you find certain people, especially that you can really open up to. But I think across the board, it's a fantastic community to be part of. That's awesome. Talk about where you guys are right now from a brand perspective, a distribution perspective, what your goals are. Yeah. So we are, you know, in retail stores, about a thousand retail stores across the country, primarily focused on the coast and, you know, Whole Foods. We're in on the West Coast, like Erwan and Mothers, Lassen's, a lot of the natural retailers will be launching on Thrive Market shortly. And we're also available online. So through our website, Amazon. And then we're in a lot of actually corporate offices. So, you know, food service was a huge piece of our business prior to COVID. And that has started to pick back up over the last really three months, I would say, is really where we're starting to see it pick up a lot of momentum as people are going back into work. But yeah, that's we're really focused on natural right now, going deeper into certain metro markets, New York, San Francisco, Southern California, and in Texas. Texas is interesting. Is that because of Austin or is it just a big market for you guys? I think, you know, it's it's great for a beverage company, you know, to be because mm-hmm. you don't really have that seasonal impact that you yep. see oftentimes in the Northeast yeah. and Chicago and, and so on. But yeah, I think, you know, there have been a ton of people moving to that market over the past couple of years, but it just does really have those, you know, specifically where we're focused in Dallas and Austin tend to have, you know, a customer base that is interested in, you know, new and unique things. They appreciate generally speaking, obviously, but, you know, our packaging and, yeah. you know, the, the visuals there and the thoughtfulness of the flavor profiles and everything seems to work really well in that community. So, you know, those are really the metros that we've been leaning into. Do you want to talk a little bit about your packaging? Cause it's very, very awesome and different. And I think that as a, you know, in a store, as a billboard, it's really great branding. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a a good story. I mean, we, so as I mentioned prior to COVID, we, about 65% of our business was in corporate offices. We very organically kind of worked our way into the channel and just realized how efficient it was, how high volume it was. And so, you know, we were scaling up there. We said, let's grow the top line there as much as we can we'll push deeper into retail once we have deeper pockets to grow the team and all that, right? So retail is an expensive game. And, but when COVID hit and and office closed, we really had to take a look inward to say, all right, well, how can we be more relevant 
in retail stores? How can we be, you know, more relevant online? You know, and so we looked at needing to upgrade packaging. We had brought in a brand strategist actually prior to COVID. And the reason for that was when we launched, we were really one of the only brands, if not the only brand doing a sparkling tea. Yes. And at that point, it was kind of enough to say that's what made us different, right? Like yeah. our category, what we were made us different. Fast forward to a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and there started to be, you know, this really sort of large emerging, I'll call it hybrid sparkling set, right? Where yes. it wasn't soda, it wasn't sparkling water, it didn't fit into a traditional box. And so at that point, you know, we knew we really needed to take a deeper look into like, what's the fabric of the brand? What sets us apart there? And, you know, and so bringing in the strategist yielded, the packaging didn't really align with our value proposition, the uniqueness and layers of flavors. And so again, when, when COVID hit and offices closed and we lost a, a really big chunk of our business, that accelerated our timeline because we knew something needed to change to be more relevant in those other channels. And a package that jumped off the shelf that inspired someone to pick it up. And then online, it was really about, and I mean, this drives general brand awareness and kind of creates that flywheel across the board, but how can we inspire someone to take a picture of this can and talk about it and yeah. be proud, right? And we had so many people with our old packaging posting pictures of the back of the can. It was the nutrition facts, the yeah. ingredients, but the front was uninspiring. And so, yeah, I mean, this was really kind of one of those brand type moments where our business was, was down, you know, cash was thin. We had to pull a bunch of money out of our marketing budget and kind of throw our 2020 sales forecast to the wind and said, okay, well, we're doing this. We've already rebranded once. This is the last time we're ever doing it. We've got to get it right. And so in, yeah, third quarter of 2020, we worked with an agency called Red Scout, who just did a phenomenal job. And, you know, ultimately our goal was telling a flavor story in a visually compelling way that was differentiated in the market where it wasn't just a grapefruit picture, right? Or that obviously is so common. And, you know, they gave us this really kind of retro eye-catching, creates this phenomenal brand blocking on shelf as well. Yes. It really jumps off the shelf and creates a pattern there. And yeah, it was a process and, you know, could obviously go on a long tangent just in terms of what we did, how it worked and, you know, all of the testing along the way. But I'm sure that there's plenty of other things to chat about, but that that's kind of high level where the rebrand was. And we launched that in March of 2021. It did kind of everything we wanted it to do. Organic social mentions tripled, if not more, same store velocities are, are way up as well, which then has obviously led to new store growth. And so we really rebuilt the foundation significantly stronger than it had been. I think it's an interesting topic, actually, because I think when you're in the position that a lot of early to mid-stage brands are in and you're struggling and trying to figure out what the priorities are for money, right? Because there's so many things you need to do. You obviously need to get distribution. You need to market so that you can pull your distribution through, but you also need a really strong foundation. And I think people sometimes skip that part or spend less time and resources on it because it feels like it's not as important. But I think, I mean, obviously I think it is because I'm a brander to begin with, but I also think that your story is interesting because you obviously had to make some hard choices at the time and you did, and you knew how important that was. And now it sounds like you're really seeing sort of the reward of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, for us, it's a really hard decision to make. And yeah. again, because you can get into a mindset where we have to hit 2020 sales forecast, right? right? You know, you have to hit it. 
And, you know, really for us, like we're looking 10 years down the line instead of 10 weeks or 10 months down the line and said, all right, well, if we're a brand that's thriving in 10 years from now, this is going to be a blip on the radar. It's going to be a very small piece moment in time. If we continue on the path we're on, we may hit our forecast, but we may not be here a year later. And I think that's really the challenge of, you know, the decision, right? It's like anything, right? Investing, right? Long versus short-term gains. And that's really, yeah, as you said, I mean, you hear a lot of people obviously talking about competitive moat and, you know, how are you different? And over time, why can't a big soda brand just recreate your product? And it all comes down to really, I think the brand packaging, but ultimately, you know, the community around it, the energy around it that you can't replicate. And, you know, the positioning and branding is such, if not the most important piece of that. So yeah. And especially for a beverage brand where it's just such a quick, it's high volume, you know, it's not something where it's, you know, a condiment that you're going to buy, you know, once a month, it's really high velocity and high volume trial. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I think it's really important too, obviously, because if you don't have the foundation, I mean, I see people going all over the place and sort of bumping into new ideas on what the positioning is or new ideas on what the packaging could be. And it's so confusing for consumers. So it's awesome that you actually did the work and put the time in and now it appears to be working for you. Have you guys raised capital? We have. Yeah. I mean, we don't have any, say like more institutional investors. We've been very lean from a beverage perspective over an eight-year life. But yeah, we have taken outside money. Most of it has been from you know angel investors, mm-hmm. some family offices, things like that. Okay. And how do you feel about scaling? Like what's your sort of wish and what's your plan? Yeah. I mean, you know, generally speaking, it's to, to get it into to more hands and more doors. I mean, we're very, you know, we think about it from a distribution perspective, kind of getting to striking the balance between the number of doors and velocity, right? At the yeah, end of the day, it's all about important conversation. velocity. Yes. And making sure, right? Because we've made those mistakes of, of going into a chain too early and being discontinued. And, you know, now I think we have the mindset of making sure we're getting the wins and before we're growing. But yeah, ultimately it's continuing to saturate distribution in natural, continuing to get deeper into the metro markets, pushing, you know, more towards the center of the country and, you know, ultimately, I mean, we want to be a household name, you know, beverage, right? We want to be something that people are swapping out their sodas for on a daily basis and, yeah. you know, replacing their, you know, naturally flavored sparkling waters with. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you feel like at some point you're going to have to do a really big raise or are you trying not to? <laughs> I, I would love to say we're trying not to, but yeah, I mean, ultimately that will be something we will do, you know, to be able to get to the scale we would need to. It's just for, again, in in beverages as consumer by itself is, you know, can be very cash intensive and investing into obviously acquisition upfront. And I think beverage more than most takes a lot of investment early. So we will be continuing to raise capital. You know, we have, and I think this has obviously been a trend over the past several years and even more so now, right? Like, making sure that margins are very strong, making yes. sure that you're, you know, you're not growing at all costs. So yeah. we are very sort of diligent in, in continuing to be efficient on spend and, and not overspending and, you know, trying to over raise to say we did it, just raising yeah. what we need to, to be able to get to that ultimate scale we want to, we want to achieve. I'm curious when you talk about velocity, like, I think it's so smart what you're doing. And I, I appreciate that you already made some mistakes and had 
your products discontinued because I think when you get over distributed early, it's impossible to support the retailers the way that they need to be supported so that you have the velocity that you need to stay. So can you talk a little bit about that? How do you do that now? So you get into a retailer, are you supporting every single retailer that you're in somehow with something? Yeah, I would say that some are more general, you know, geo-targeted. Some are very much at the account at the store level. You know, we're a small team. And so we're also relying on third-party merchandisers to get in. A lot of it is making sure, you know, voids are closed. You know, it's like, so we make sure what we're doing is from an awareness perspective, right? Top of funnel, like make sure people in the market know we exist. Yeah, And then it's at the store level, a lot of it, you know, it's, it's fairly simple, you know, as long as if, if the product works, right. But there are certain yeah. things that I think we didn't do well to start. And I think are just kind of these table stakes types, things of just closing voids, making sure people are showing up in stores. You obviously can't sell product if it's not on shelves, driving strong store level relationships and making sure you have a steady promotional cadence too. Right. I mean, that's such an easy one that I think early stage brands can miss. There are so many things to kind of take care of. And, you know, I think that's an important one at the store level, but beyond that, we get distributor level data, certain accounts, we get scan data and, you know, we're really looking at forward progress. It's, it's, you know, how are we trending month over month, quarter over quarter, and, you know, ensuring that if there's an account that needs more support, maybe they need in-store demos sampling. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to turn up the geo-targeted social marketing in that market, doing more couponing and, you know, events. Yeah, it's really kind of store by store. And we want to make sure that every store is moving forward before we start to move too aggressively into yeah, a bigger group of accounts. So what are the biggest challenges you feel like you're facing right now? That's always a great thing to talk about for people who are listening. Yeah, I think a little bit of is what we were just talking about is thinking about right how fast and where to scale. I think that that's always a challenge for brands. I think there's especially maybe now in this world of LinkedIn where it's, you know, it's kind of become like how Instagram was several years ago, getting the bad rap about like, oh, it's, it's overly filtered. It's everyone's best moments, things like that. Right. Yes. And, and as a founder, anyone in the space, you can go on LinkedIn and there are just an endless scroll of people saying, here's my latest win. Here's where we just launched. Here's where we're doing well. And you can really feel like you need to go after everything. Yes. You say, oh, they're there. We need to be there. Yep. If they're doing that. We need to do that. And you can really take this sort of reactionary approach. And so I think it's really, again, keeping the blinders on, knowing the wins we want to get, knowing the path we want to stay on in going after ambitious, but healthy growth. And, you know, so I think that's really just one of the challenges is you're also for some of these bigger chain accounts relying on maybe a one to two time a year category review calendar. And if you don't win those, how do you grow in between? And in a way that's relevant to the business and relevant to the, you know, sort of broader goals. So, yeah, I think that that's one of the challenges right now that I think, you know, again, most brands face along the way is just how fast to grow and where exactly to grow, you know, because you always want to be growing, right? But I think just making sure it's in the right places and again, taking that long-term view versus, you know, what is the next three months rather look at the next, you know, kind of three years and making sure you're, you're continuing to grow on, on a healthy trajectory. So interesting that you mentioned that about LinkedIn, because that is exactly what's happening. And, you know, you don't think about companies the same way you think about humans, but it's the same thing that happens to people on Instagram, right? You compare yourself to something and it's not really relevant, but you still do it and you feel bad. And 
I don't know, maybe you change what you're doing. And I love that you're even talking about it and you're aware of it so that, cause it's tempting, right. To say, Oh my God, I need to do that right now. I got to hurry up. But then that's probably one of the worst things you could actually do. So I love that you even talk about it and recognize it because I think it's just a, a little piece of human psychology that's translating into a brand, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's tough. I think again, it's, it really takes that level of self-restraint. And I think yes. it kind of goes back to, we've made the mistakes, but also investing into the foundation and where do we want to be? If I knew nothing, what would we want to do? What's the path? What are the accounts that we would want to be in? In sort of in what order would they come in in an ideal world? And yeah, and those are the sort of things that I think you see a, a brand who's a competitor raise a large chunk of cash and you'd yeah. say, oh, we need to do that. Or yeah. Yeah. you know, they're doing X campaign or we should do that. And, it, and it's not, sometimes it is, sometimes, you know, you should have done it. But I think most of the time it's not the case and it's really just a distraction. And so it is, I think that's a challenge across the board that I know brands are facing because there's an endless supply of new brands out there. Yes, the there are. store buyers and invest, like the constant deal flow and sort of brands being presented are endless. And so the best thing you can really do is, is kind of stay the course and, you know, again, just kind of stick true to the vision and the mission and, and just be fluid with the other pieces of it. Yeah. Awesome. Is there anything you want to share? I know I'm taking up so much of your time, so I'm, I want to be respectful, but is there any advice you'd like to share that something that just like, I wish everyone knew this when they started, so they didn't make that mistake or so they went down the right path? Yeah. I mean, I'd say like a really quick one. I mean, and this is advice that that I would give based on, I think, mistakes that we made is, you know, hiring as early as you can in, in a healthy way. I think that you want to be able to sort of do every job, right? So that you can understand how to do it when you have a team, but understanding that there are certain things that, you know, to be able to delegate and outsource. And when you're a founder, it's, it's oftentimes hard early on to yeah. hand your baby to someone else, right? And, and to trust that. But I think it's a really important thing to do early on if you can get, you know, at least even just one or two sort of, you know, jack of all trades or Jill of all trades, like someone who can wear many hats and, and just kind of help you along the way. I think it's super important. I think like leaning into the community, you know, as you said, the food and beverage community, this is something I wish that we had done earlier on is leaning into the community. And not feeling like every problem needed to be solved internally and being more vulnerable. And again, I think that this comes back to sort of the LinkedIn conversation a little bit around if you see everyone's posting wins and how well they're doing, you can be reluctant to say, I don't know what I'm doing, or I can't figure this out or, you know, help me. Right. And I think really, you know, being vulnerable and leaning into a few trusted people in space isn't, incredibly important and, you know, will definitely help accelerate sort of the solving certain answers for you. Those are a couple. I love that. I mean, I think it's important and I think it's hard because you're starting your own company and you don't want people, you certainly don't want people who you might want to ask for money to think you don't know what you're doing. Right. So you have to be careful, but also there are so many people that really genuinely seem to want to help. So I'm glad that you said that because I think that people need to hear that and know that there are people and groups. I mean, there's so many groups for natural foods startups that are just waiting to help and give advice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You wouldn't believe the number of people that are, you know, kind of saying one thing, we're all doing it because we're all selling, right? We're, we're all trying to, to show yeah. the, the buyer, but in the back end, you know, we're all in a way just figuring it out. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, as you said, we're all kind of just humans in the back end. And, and as much as we all present as experts, there are certain things we're all trying to figure out as we go. So I think that's definitely something I'd advise. 
Yeah. What do you do? This is the last question. What do you do when, do you ever get like, oh no, I can't do this anymore. I don't know why I, why I changed jobs. And do you ever feel like <laughs> that? And if you do, what do you do to get yourself back on track? I think it goes back to, and this is such a cliche, but like why you're doing it. This is something that I'm you know, just proud of with Salim and I over the, the eight years again. And I think just staying strong on mission, like that's something that we haven't moved. Our brand name has changed. Our packaging has changed. Our flavors have changed. Our route to market has changed. All of these things have evolved. But one thing that hasn't is our commitment to ingredient quality, our commitment to helping people drink less sugar. And I think that can be a really challenging thing is when you lose track of why you started it in the first place. That's when you, I think, can start to wake up and think, why am I doing this? Like we, you know, I could, I could tell too many stories around, I could really go for a cubicle and some health benefits right now. And, you know, knowing I'm getting paid next week and all of those good things, you know, especially with the kids at home. And, but at the end of the day, it's like what motivates me. And I, and I know Salim and the rest of the team is just getting behind what we're doing and why we're doing it. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is a great interview. I can't wait to get it live. Fantastic. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Christy. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.